everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, welcome back, everyone. It is Brandon Odo with another Turbo. Topic today is the mechanically ventilated patient who has a lot of spontaneous respiratory effort. These are a challenging class of patients, and it came up recently on Twitter, and I thought it was worthwhile to give a a few minutes just to look at this subgroup because um, they create clinical challenges there's not really a correct answer for. You know, you can't just learn about these people, learn the right way to handle them, and then go out and do that because it's not really a right way. You have to balance some different considerations and try to come up with the kind of least harm, most optimal approach for the individual patient in front of you, understanding that you're in a realm where there's really no data. So let me explain the problem, and then I'll kind of spell out what I think is an approach that makes sense, uh, again, with the caveat that, you know, what the hell do I know? So here's the basic situation. Any breath that the patient gets on the ventilator, we're generally talking about intubated patients, I guess they could have a trach, it's going to be built from two different components. One is the pressure that the ventilator generates according to whatever rules you've established for the type of breath. It could be a pressure control type breath, a volume control type breath, some sort of a a hybrid or, or targeted, you know, servo adaptive sort of breath, whatever. But With no effort from the patient, this is what they would be getting. So if it were triggered by just a a time trigger in a mode like assist control, a patient who was, let's say, brain dead, making no breaths, they would just get a bunch of these breaths, and they would all look identical. On the flip side, you have effort generated by the patient. This is sometimes abbreviated as P-musk, which is, you know, muscular pressure. And this is work the patient is doing on their own. Now, you or I, not mechanically ventilated, all of our effort is generated in this way. As you remember from your respiratory physiology, it is physiologically somewhat different because you're breathing by negative pressure. You're making negative pleural pressure, which pulls open the lungs and entrains air from the atmosphere, uh, as opposed to those positive pressure breaths that the vent gives you. However, uh, on the ventilator, you end up with kind of a... Uh, middle ground because anything that you want to generate as the patient does have to go through the ventilator and the ventilator has to decide what to do with that. In the oldest days of mechanical ventilation, there was no provision for that. So it just wouldn't allow it. If you sucked at the ventilator, the vent would say, nope, sorry, I'm going to give you the breaths when I choose to. They're going to look like whatever I have set. And then if you want something else, you're on your own. Now, of course, we generally want to allow patients to have some of their own effort because that's what they want. So you're going to have some mix in most patients between this kind of P-musk and the P-vent from the ventilator. And this could represent as the patient triggering some breaths and the ventilator triggering some breaths. But more than triggering, what can become challenging is the effort within individual breath. If a patient has a great deal of spontaneous effort, a strong respiratory drive, 
because of who they are, uh, they are awake, they are not too sedated, uh, they have an effort that they want to generate, just as you or I would. We have to decide what to do with that on the ventilator, because they may want something different from what we want to give them. And the most common example is they want a bigger breath. Typically, for critically ill patients, we try to deliver somewhat conservative, constrained, smaller tidal volumes and airway pressures. They go together, so we usually look at both. Of course, this derives from the ARDS literature, which suggests that barotrauma and volutrauma over-distending these alveoli tends to cause them damage, which could represent as macro-injury such as pneumothoraces, but most commonly is micro-injury, little micro-fractures in those over-inflated alveoli. Um, and this mostly is coming from the fact that these patients with ARDS don't have normal lung volumes, a lot of their lung is shunted off with goo, and therefore the tidal volume of delivering is being squeezed into a much smaller lung, those kind of baby lungs. Um, some people think that the lung is actually stiffer, but that's that kind of a, a misconception. If you took a section of normal lung in these patients, it actually tends to have relatively normal compliance. It's not like a patient with pulmonary fibrosis, you know, unless it's a very late stage of ARDS. The reason they have poor compliance uh, in a macro sense is because you're just squeezing air into a, a smaller lung. Anyway, so because we have pretty strong evidence that limiting the volume and pressure in these patients improves their outcomes, that's what we do. Certainly a patient with ARDS, we use these lung protective ventilatory strategies. And a lot of us have extrapolated that to mean that we should probably target this in most of our patients. The evidence for that is not quite as strong, but there is some evidence that lung protective ventilation tends to reduce the risk of ARDS in someone without it. And, you know, a lot of our patients are maybe somewhat on a spectrum of lung injury, even if you wouldn't really call them a true ARDS patient. So it just makes sense as kind of a default. The problem is that if you go out and give this patient a tidal volume of 350 or 400 cc's when they want 500 or more, they're not going to like it. And you're going to have to decide what to do with that. They're going to have spontaneous effort, which demands more, and you are going to be giving them less. I don't want to get too lost in the vagaries of ventilator dyssynchrony because that's a, a bigger topic, but I'm going to lump together a few things. I've kind of talked about patients wanting a larger tidal volume, and that may actually mean they want a longer inspiratory time, so they want to inspire past when the ventilator breath has ended, or it can mean they want a larger volume in the meantime, which could mean higher flows to achieve that in the same amount of time. Uh, these all end up kind of meaning similar things. You know, flow to synchrony could not necessarily entail wanting a larger volume as well, but because patients who have a lot of respiratory drive tend to have all of these things. They want a somewhat longer breath, faster, with more volume received. Um, we can kind of lump them together for these purposes. Suffice to say that if the patient wants that, you're going to have to decide what to do. 
if you lock them to receive only the volume slash pressure you choose to give them, whatever you feel to be lung protective, they're going to have dyssynchrony because they're going to want to inspire faster or for longer and receive a larger volume when you've cut them off. And they're going to have some version of a, a flow dyssynchrony as they're sucking at the ventilator or a short cycling dyssynchrony because they're trying to breathe past when the breath ended and perhaps they'll get a, a double trigger in another breath. You know, some sort of a dyssynchrony, which um, if it's severe, neither you or they are going to like and could even result in them receiving non-lung protective ventilation because they're getting double breaths, so very large volumes, or perhaps they're having flow dyssynchrony and really sucking at that vent, creating a lot of transpulmonary pressure, which is probably not good for them either. Or you can use the ventilatory elegant approach and liberalize their ventilatory parameters and say whatever the patient wants is what they can have. So you liberalize the flow with something like a, a pressure targeted mode, like pressure control or even just pressure support. Let them have whatever flow they want. And you can liberalize the, the size and duration of the breath with something like pressure support and say, hey, if you want to pull in a long, deep breath and get 700 cc's, go for it. The patient's going to be more comfortable and not have those dyssynchronies, but now they're going to have a 700 cc breath you have to decide if that's okay because you came into this thinking that you wanted to keep them lung protective. This came up a tremendous amount during COVID because for whatever reason, and there's been debate, part of that physiology seemed to be a very strong respiratory drive in a lot of these patients. So spontaneously left to their own devices, they wanted to take eight, nine hundred thousand cc breaths and breathe pretty fast and have crazy high minute ventilations and that's just what they would do if you let them. So if you locked them down to something tighter, they would just get real mad about it, and you may or may not have success. So what do you end up doing? Sedating them. And that's the only real solution that allows for truly lung-protective breaths on these patients who have a really strong drive. So what do you do? My bias is to want to try to just liberalize their settings and let patients do what they want. Um, but there certainly are patients where that's the wrong choice, I think. So I think what you have to do is look at the patient in front of you and do a risk-benefit analysis and decide, is this patient going to incur more risk and harm from having lung non-protective ventilation or more risk and harm from being sedated out of this? We know that both of those things could have injury, but it would make sense why certain patients are more at risk from one or the other. So some patients, I really want to keep kind of out of the, the pit of medicalization, which often they sink into when they get intubated. They get sedation, they get stuck in bed, they get knocked out, they become delirious, and they get into that downward spiral of being delirious, needing more sedation, being stuck on the vent for longer, being immobile, and all of those things. It's great if you can take a patient and say, I got to intubate you because of your breathing or whatever, but you're otherwise normal and can stay that way. So you can stay awake, kind of breathe somewhat normally, et cetera, et cetera. And a great example would be a patient intubated for their airway only. Not mental status, but truly their airway, like some swelling there, something like that. Let them be awake. 
let them play cribbage on their phone, uh, let them breathe spontaneously and normally they have normal lungs. Great. On the flip side, you might have the patient who truly does have ARDS, the, the real thing here. And that's a patient who we probably have to accept something like sedation if it came to that uh, in exchange for truly tight ventilatory strategies. And, you know, that may mean controlling other parameters as well, that we may have to do weird stuff with their rates, uh, with high peeps, inverting their IDE ratio, stuff like that. There's just a good chance that those are all going to be sort of unphysiologic, confusing things that an awake patient might not want. So, hey, we're just going to have to accept that for that patient. But those might be different patients. Now, of course, there could be a patient where those are both a concern. And again, some of these COVID patients could have been an example. They had essentially ARDS, maybe a certain flavor of it, but that's what they had. And yet they had these strong respiratory drives. So what do you do? I just don't know. I guess I'm inclined to say that relatively early in the disease, when there's a great deal of inflammation, we had to focus on lung protectiveness. And that may mean things like sedation. But maybe over time, because some of these people had these strong respiratory drives for a long time, weeks, even months, over time, maybe we said, okay, we're past an inflammatory phase. If there is still injury to that lung, it's, it's more fibrotic and it's sort of set in probably. So now, you know, if there's still poor lung compliance, that's probably just how they're going to be. And now the harm of things like sedation is probably more important because we got to get this patient liberated. They're incurring more and more injury just from being in the ICU and, you know, being on the ventilator and being sedated and paralyzed and restrained and all these things. That's their greatest risk right now. So I'm going to let them have their bigger breaths. Is it possible that it's causing some ongoing injury? I don't know, maybe. But if there's not a, an inflammatory milieu, I think it's got to be less risk and eventually uh, a minimal risk. Again, you or I may take very large breaths and we're not at risk for lung injury because there, there's kind of nothing else going on. It's kind of a that, that two-hit situation where it's you know high volumes and pressures in the setting of lungs that are already prone to being leaky and harmed. So that's kind of my thought process on this. I'd be eager to hear yours because, again, I don't think there's a right answer. And, you know, if someone really feels like there is only one answer, I think they're showing their own biases here and, and just not, not seeing or considering the harms of the other side because they are both present. It just may be that you can choose to prioritize one or the other in an individual patient. And over time and in a different setting on a different day, you may change what you think is appropriate. I do think it's... Um, it's a fantasy to think that you can just fix this in any elegant way. The elegant solution to any vent dyssynchrony is adjusting the ventilator, but you see here that that's just allowing something to happen, which, you know, may or may not be okay. No great answers. Like all the challenging questions in critical care, you just got to make a difficult decision. Let me know what you guys think, and I'll talk to you next time.